You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. Morning. How's everybody doing today? Good, good. It's nice to see that you're uh, awake and bright-eyed and bushy-tailed on this dreary fall morning, but uh, it is a pleasure to get to be with you guys this morning. Uh, if you're a guest with us, my name is Michael Bailey. I'm one of the pastors here at Midtown Fellowship, and it's my honor and privilege and joy uh, to get to be with you this morning as we open up God's Word together as a little family uh, to be more molded and made into the image of Jesus with one another. So we are going to be in our third installment of our Life of David series this morning, uh, and this is going to be something of of a Forrest Gump sermon for you. Now, that, that may sound a little weird, so allow me to explain. If, you, if you're familiar with the Forrest Gump movie, you remember that Forrest Gump opens up, uh, the opening scene kind of zeroes in on Forrest, sitting at a very ordinary, unassuming bus stop, right? He's just sitting there, life's like a bunch of, uh, box of chocolates, the whole nine yards, whatever. Uh, and basically, the whole movie is Forrest retelling everything that happened to lead up to this point. The whole movie is essentially one great big flashback as he paints the picture for us of what led him to this bus stop. And it's not until the climax of the movie that we realize, oh man, this bus stop is actually pretty significant. It's a pretty pivotal moment in Forrest's life. And similarly, that's what our text today is going to be like. This portion of the life of David is going to function in a similar fashion. It's going to start very inconspicuous. But once we get the flashback, we're going to see just how big of a deal it is. But our story this morning does not start at a bus stop. Our story starts at a bathroom. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 24 together. If you want to go ahead and grab a Bible and turn there, that would be great. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are some located underneath the seats uh, underneath you, uh, or you can obviously flip open your phone to your Bible app or whatever it may be. But we're going to be in 1 Samuel 24 together this morning. Pretty much the whole chapter will start in verse 1. This is what it reads. It says, When Saul returned from following the Philistine, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. So this is taking place when Saul is hunting down David to kill him so that David won't actually become king. We've touched on this for the past couple of weeks that Saul sort of made it his life's aim to destroy David. Now, this has been going off and on for four to five years at this point. Let's hit verse two. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he, came, uh, and he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. You got to love the details of the Bible, right? You just, you, you got to love this. Saul is in hot pursuit of David when all of a sudden, as happens to all of us, nature calls, right? Uh, and there are no flying jays or pilots when you're on the road in the ancient Near East. So when you're on the road in the ancient Near East, the best option you've got is a cave that you happen to come across. And I don't know how many sermons in your life you've heard about a potty break, uh, but that's what's happening this morning because this isn't just an inconsequential trip to the loo. This is the most pivotal potty break in Saul's life. And for the record, the inner 10-year-old in me wants to use a lot of bathroom humor in this sermon. I'm going to do the mature thing and not do that. And so I would like for you all to just appreciate my choice for maturity here over immaturity because it's kind of a big deal for me. All right, it's a very, very big deal. Anyway, keep reading. This is a pivotal, pivotal potty break. Check it out. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And here we go. 
What happens next is very important. But like I said, to really understand the significance, what we need to do is we need to rewind just a little bit and look at Saul's story that has led him up to this point. And so what I want to do for the first chunk of our time is just bring us up to speed on who Saul is and what led him to this position. And it's going to take a little while, but I promise we will come back to the bathroom. So we've touched on this for the past couple of weeks, but the first anointed king of Israel was not David. It was Saul. In 1 Samuel 9, Saul was out running an errand for his father when he meets the prophet Samuel. And when Samuel sees him, he realizes that this is the guy that God told him would be king. So Samuel anoints him right there on the spot. And it's a, it's a fairly private event. And after it's over, Samuel sends Saul back home before he makes it public with a big coronation ceremony. And when Saul gets home, his uncle asks him what happened on his journey out on this errand. And Saul tells him everything. He tells him about meeting the prophet Samuel, which was a rather big deal. He tells him about uh, the condition of the errand that his father had sent him out on. He tells him everything except for the fact that Samuel anointed him king, which might seem like an inconsequential detail to you, but it actually isn't. Because what we begin to see, even from the earliest introduction to Saul's life, is that Saul is marked by an insecurity and an unwillingness to trust God. He doesn't want people to know that God picked him to be king. He doesn't want to do what God wants. He doesn't really trust God with this decision, which, as a side note, at its core, this is what insecurity really is, just for your frame of reference. Insecurity really is a lack of trust in God. It's a lack of trust that God knew what he was doing when he made us as we are. It's a lack of trust that his opinion about us is what actually matters most. And this is what we see in Saul's life. And we see this lack of trust clearly a few verses later in chapter 10 at the public coronation ceremony. Samuel is proclaiming to the crowd that God is going to give them what they want and put a king over them. And this is what it says. We'll pick up in verse 20. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. Now, keep in mind, Saul's kingship has already been anointed. It has already been predetermined by God. But Samuel is out here drawing straws. He's given us a nice little showcase of God's sovereignty. But check this out. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there still a man to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. So I like to imagine that Saul is there watching this whole scene unfold. He sees Samuel out here drawing straws and he's thinking to himself, oh, great. He's going to leave this whole thing up to chance. There's no chance I'll be king then. This is awesome. I probably won't be king. Oh, wait, he just drew my tribe. Okay. All right. That, that's okay. Uh, there are a lot of clans in my tribe. What's the likelihood that he draws my clan? Oh, okay. He drew my clan. Well, there's still a chance that he won't draw my family. Oh, crap. He just picked my name. Uh, all right, what do I do? Where do I go? I got to go hide myself. And he slips off and hides in the Louis Vuitton. And Saul, the point here is Saul doesn't want to be king. He doesn't want to listen to God. He doesn't want to submit to God's will. In some respects, he must, think he must think he knows better than God, that he shouldn't be king. And to be fair, he's not altogether wrong on that point. But the point is, he doesn't like what God says, so he attempts to take matters into his own hands and hides. And what we see here from his life is this is profound lack of trust in God. Saul does not believe that God knows what's best. Saul does not think that God has his best in mind. It's not just that Saul is reluctant to become king. Anyone would probably be reluctant to become king given the task. 
But Saul does not trust that God knows what he's doing. And this basically becomes the pattern of Saul's life. This is one example. I'll show you a couple more important ones. The next one comes in 1 Samuel 13. This is after his coronation. Samuel gives Saul explicit instruction from God to go down to a place called Gilgal to prepare to beat the Philistines. But that once he's there, he is supposed to wait seven days for Samuel to arrive so that Samuel may offer a sacrifice to God and tell Saul what God wants him to do. Now, this is really important, all right? Because you got to remember, the primary way God spoke to his people during this era was through his prophets like Samuel. So when Samuel gives a command or an instruction, it is not simply Samuel saying saying it, but it carries with it the authority and command of God. This is a command from the Lord. The problem is that Samuel shows up a little bit late. This is 1 Samuel 13, 8 through 13. He, Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people who were scattering, and the people were scattering from him. So Samuel is late, and the people who have been rallying behind Saul are starting to lose their fervor. They're starting to lose their zeal a little, a little bit. Essentially, he's losing his political momentum. His polling numbers are going down. He's losing the popular vote and the people's approval. And as we'll see in a second, he's also worried about the Philistines, that the Philistines will see his lack of support, and they might work up the gumption to attack while his numbers are low. And so he's posed with this difficult decision. There's this difficult option in front of him. Will he trust God and keep waiting? Will he trust God and what God has told him to do and keep waiting on Samuel to arrive? Will he trust God over what he sees or not? Will he again take matters into his own hands? Verse 9. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Now this is a huge deal. Not to you because of your cultural distance from the ancient Near East where sacrifices were uh, part of the norm. But this is a big, big deal in this world. The offering of sacrifices and how it's done is a big thing. God has been real clear that this was Samuel's God-appointed job and his alone. That Samuel, the one with the authority of a prophet, told Saul to wait. And Saul directly defies this command. Saul does not listen to God's words and follow faithfully. He does not trust in God's timing. Once again, he takes matters into his own hands. Again, profound distrust in God and complete disregard for the things that he says. Saul chooses once again to do what is right and sensible in his own eyes. Verse 10, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Perfect timing. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. So Saul walks out to Samuel like, everything is cool. Like, what's up, Sam? It's good to see you. And Samuel is not fooled whatsoever. Verse 11, Samuel said, what have you done? Just right out the gate. Not, hey, how you doing? Just, what have you done? And the excuses from Saul just come pouring out. Check out what he says. And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. And I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel, you don't understand. Samuel, you don't, you don't get it. I know what God said, but the people were leaving. The people were leaving, and you were late, and the Philistines were getting ready to fight. I, I had to do this. I didn't have any other options. I didn't want to do it. I would have preferred not to do it, but I had to, so I forced myself to do it. 
In essence, I didn't want to distrust or disobey God, but my circumstances forced my hand. Because of the situation I was in, Samuel, I had to be unfaithful. I had to disobey. Samuel, you just don't understand. You didn't know the situation. You don't know what it's like. Verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. So Samuel hints at what Saul's unfaithfulness is going to cost him. The kingdom. I'll show you one more in 1 Samuel 15. Samuel again comes to Saul and says, God sent me to anoint you as king, and God has a job for you to do. Now, many, many years before this, when the Israelites were fleeing slavery from Egypt, you may remember this story if you're familiar with uh, Exodus, where God frees his people from captivity. But while they were wandering in the desert, a nomadic people group of plunderers called the Amalekites attacked them and sought to do evil to God's people. Here were God's people, finally free from their captivity in Egypt, wandering homeless in the desert. And this king and his people come after them to raid and plunder them. And so Samuel comes to Saul and says, God remembers this injustice. God remembers what the Amalekites did to God's people. He remembers the wrong that they did. And he now wants you to lead his people to be instruments of his justice. Go and destroy them and everything they have. All of it. Leave absolutely nothing. Now, I know i got to pause here because I know the idea of God demanding the annihilation of a people group might raise some questions for you, right? Like it might bring up some, some issues. And so I don't have time to get into all of it, but I want to say two things. First of all, uh, the scripture guide for this week actually goes into this, uh, this topic in a little bit more detail. So we've got that for you and some resources on the website that if you've got questions, they're there to answer. Uh, it's there for you to help uh, provide some, some answers. But if you think, the second thing I want to say is if you think this is an extreme response from God, what you need to take away from this is that God takes sin and justice and oppression very, very seriously. He takes them very seriously. He will not leave these things unchecked because he is good. Because he is good, he will not let sin and injustice and oppression uh, go unchecked. And so if you have ever doubted whether or not God cares about all the seemingly senseless evil and tragedy that happens in our word, uh, in our world, things like this tell us that he does care and he intends to do something about it. But look at verse 7. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to a destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. And what was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. What did God say do? Not a trick question. Destroy everything. Did Saul destroy everything? No. No, he didn't. Once again, Saul takes matters into his own hands. Saul thought he knew better than God. He thinks, I know God said destroy it all, but why destroy all this good stuff? Why destroy all the stuff that we could use? This doesn't seem right. These are good sheep, and these are good cows, and we can use them for food and for clothing and even sacrifices. We should keep them. We should keep them. These things are useful. God won't care. And later Samuel shows up and is like, did you follow through with what God said? And Saul responds with, yep, sure did. And Samuel goes, well, if that's the case, why do I hear a bunch of sheep going, bah, why is that happening right now? And that's literally what's in the text. You can go back and look at it later. I mean, not the bad, but you get it, all right? Uh, 
essentially, essentially Saul is busted. And Samuel confronts him, verse 17. And Samuel says, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord, said, uh, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? You knew what God said to do. Why didn't you do it? You knew what God commanded, Saul. Why didn't you do it? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? You see, part of not trusting God is not believing that he sees more than you see or that he knows more than you know, or rather believing that he sees or thinks like you think. This is what happened to Saul here. He was like, listen, this is good stuff. God's got to affirm this is good stuff. He didn't really mean all that destroy it all, uh, all that destroy it all uh, topic, con- content, sorry. Verse 20, and Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission to which God sent me. I have brought Agog, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted to Amalekite, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the, the, best thing, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God and Gilgal. You see what he does? Samuel, you don't see. I did obey. I did what I was supposed to do. It was these other people. They were the ones who disobeyed. They're the ones who took the spoil. First of all, that's not true. And second of all, he was their leader. He was the one given responsibility over them. He was supposed to guide these people towards God's will and commands. Their actions are his responsibility. Once again, he shifts blame and claims that his circumstances dictated his disobedience. And then he tries to justify it with, we were going to sacrifice these things. We were going to give them to God. That's good, right? Like, I know that we took the spoils, but we were going to give them to God and sacrifice. Surely God is okay with that. But again, Saul has missed the point. Verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Essentially, dude, God cares about your faithfulness more than your religious actions. He cares about your faithfulness more than your religious show. It doesn't matter if your intentions were good. God cares about your faithfulness to what he has said to his word. It's like that old axiom that the road to hell was paved with good intentions. He's like, it's not about doing what feels right to you or what is right in your own eyes, but it's about doing what God has declared to be right. It's about doing what God has said ought to be done. Verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption as iniquity and idolatry. Essentially, God doesn't have categories of unfaithfulness like you and I do. He doesn't ignore sin just because you don't think it's that big of a deal. He doesn't ignore sin just because it's normal in your culture or because it doesn't seem to hurt anyone. Then he says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Because you have rejected him, he has rejected you. Saul's sin, as well as yours and mine, has a consequence. The Lord's rejection. All right. Let me pause here and talk about a few things. And I promise after this, we're going to get back to the bathroom. It's coming. Everything that we just witnessed, everything that we just saw happening in Saul's life might feel a little bit foreign to you, right? 
So fearing becoming king, offering sacrifices when he wasn't supposed to, not wiping out an opposing nation, those aren't things that you're likely going to step into tomorrow morning, right? Like that's not going to be your experience when you wake up tomorrow. But while the specifics of Saul's predicaments might feel foreign, the same option is put in front of you every day in hundreds, if not thousands, of different ways. Will you trust God and do what he says or go your own way? Every day, all over the place, we are confronted with this option. Will we trust God? Will we believe him? Will we trust the things that he says and do accordingly? Or will we do what's right in our own eyes? Will we choose to see things our own way and take matters into our own hands and say, you know what? I'm going to be the one who determines what I do here. Will you trust God with what he says about money? Will, you, will I trust that it's better to give than to receive? Will I trust that it's true that where my treasure is, there my heart will be also and act accordingly? Or will I listen to my own voice or the voices of others who tell me that I've got to just keep storing up things for myself because who knows what's going to happen in the future? Or because I deserve or need a certain standard of life to be okay and happy? Will I trust God with what he says about relationships and marriage? Will I trust him with my marriage when I'm going through that rough patch? Will I trust what he says about commitment and the work that he intends to do through it? Or will I bail when things get hard and my spouse is difficult? Will I trust him with my singleness? Will I trust him with this stage of life that I'm in? Or am I going to compromise on what he says so that I don't feel so alone? Will I trust him with my sexuality? Will I trust, trust him with those things? Will I trust that his ways are right, true, and good? Even when I don't understand well, I trust that I know he's for me and loves me and will make sure that I have everything I need. Do I trust him in this? Do I trust God with my kids? Will I trust him with my family? Will I trust what he says about raising a family? That at the end of the day, he's the one who saves my kids, but I am the one with the responsibility to shape them. Or will I take matters into my own hands? Will I become a parent who micromanages everything in my kid's life, who tries to force salvation into them instead of trusting in him? Or will I drive my car off the other side of the cliff and act like I'm just supposed to be their best friend instead of their mom or their dad? Will I trust him in these things? Will I trust God with my life? Will I trust him with what he says about me, that that's the most important thing about who I am? Will I trust that he will take care of me? Well, I trust that taking up my cross and denying myself are where true life, joy, and peace are found. Will I trust God when I can't see the future? Will I trust God when I don't know what's going to happen? Will I trust God when I don't understand? Will I trust God when things are falling apart? Will I trust God when everything and everyone around me tell me to do otherwise? Will I trust God even then? Or will I go my own way? Or will I do what seems right to me in the moment? What will I do? It's the dilemma put in front of us each and every day. And it's the dilemma put in front of Saul throughout his life. And it's the, 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 excuse me, the dilemma put in front of David in the cave. So let's go back. Back to the bathroom. Here's David, hidden deep in the cave, Saul, come in, Saul comes in completely and utterly unaware of his presence, and David has his chance. All he has to do is reach out with his sword, and then everything causing problems for him in his life will go away in the blink 
of an eye. All of the trials, all of the suffering, all of the hardship in his life would be over and he could get the crown. He could take the throne in one fell swoop. Verse four, and the men of David said to him, here's the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. It's worth noting that God never actually said this to David. This is David's men, men's interpretation of these events. And so here is David with a moment where he can listen to the voice of the people around him. He can listen to what they think he ought to do. He can do what seems right in their eyes. He can take matters into his own hands, kill Saul, and take the crown. Or he can trust God. Or he can trust in God's timing and God's plan and God's ways and let God work out the details of his coronation on his own. Then David arose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut the corner off of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. David says, no, I won't do this thing. While Saul is living, he is still God's anointed king. I will not take matters into my own hands. When, when posed with this option, David chooses trust. He chooses to trust God. Verse 7. So David persuaded his men and with, these with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against my Lord for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father. See the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. David pops out of the cave behind Saul, which I feel a little bit embarrassed for Saul in that moment, to be honest with you, because nobody wants that, right? Nobody, nobody wants to be about that. But David pops out and he shows Saul the corner of his robe as a display of, hey, I had the chance to kill you and I didn't take it. I could have seized this moment. I could have seized the day, for lack of a better way of talking about it. I could have killed you and taken the throne, but I didn't because I know that while you are living you are God's, and I trust in his plan. This is why he says in verse 12, I'll let the Lord judge. I'll let him avenge. I'll let him be in control. He's saying, look, I'm going to let God handle this because this is God's business. I'm going to trust him and wait on his timing. Verse 16, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. He's saying, you are better than me because I was coming for your life and you chose to repay me with good instead of giving me what I deserved. 
And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established by your hand. The corner of his robe clutched between David's fingers tells Saul everything he needs to know. All the truth, all the words of Samuel finally come crashing down into Saul's soul. And he realizes the truth. David is God's king. Not Saul, not Saul's kids. David is God's anointed. Saul sees very clearly that David does not, does not do what Saul did throughout his life. Whereas Saul consistently took matters into his own hands, creating excuses and justifications for all of his unfaithfulness, David did not. Whereas Saul consistently did what was right in his own eyes, David was faithful even when the opportunity to expedite the process was right in front of him. Even when everyone around him was encouraging him to reach out and take it, David chose faith over fear. David chose God's will over his own. David chose trust over distrust. And this is what made David God's man. This is what made him worthy of the crown. But here's the reality for us this morning. When it comes to this portion of the life of David, you and I are far more like Saul than we are David. We are far more like Saul. Than David. When given the opportunity, we take matters into our own hands over and over and over again. We let our circumstances consistently dictate our obedience or our disobedience. We let our circumstances consistently dictate our faith or our unfaithfulness. The truth of the matter is that Saul is a picture of each and every one of us here this morning. We default to doing what is right in our own eyes and taking matters into our own hands, making excuses and shifting blame for our lack of trust and disobedience. Saul's defenses to Samuel mirror that of our own, the inner dialogue we have constantly within ourselves of, I know God said, but, I know God said this, but, I have this going on. I know God says to be faithful. I know that since I'm married, I shouldn't be flirting with my coworkers. But things haven't been that good at home lately. My wife has been a little disengaged and disinterested, and it's nice just to feel a little wanted from time to time. So I know God said I shouldn't, but I think it'll be okay. I know I shouldn't have yelled that thing at my kid this morning on our way out the house but I was in a hurry. And to be honest, he's a little annoying right now. He kind of earned it. He kind of deserved it. I mean, sure, God says be patient, but God didn't have to deal with my kid, right? I know God says it's unwise for me to be, be dating somebody who doesn't share my faith. Like, I know God says that, but we love each other. And I think I can change him. I think I'm the vehicle that God wants to use in their life to save them. I can't. I can't break up with them. I'm afraid of what would happen if we break up. If I don't stay with them, God might not save him. I know God says to be invested in a community of believers, but sometimes it's just hard for me to be around people. 
Sometimes I'm tired, and, but, but I really want my kid to play three sports because they could be a pro athlete, and that's just going to take some of our time. I know God says where your treasure is, there your heart will be too. And believe me, my heart is with God. Oh, my heart is definitely there, but, but I just don't trust churches with my money. Plus, I've got all these expenses that, you know, I mean, just I don't know how I got into them, but I'm into them like my boat. I've got my expenses. Surely God will understand. I know God said to forgive as I've been forgiven, but she hurt me really, really bad. God doesn't understand how poor of a friend she is actually being to me. And she hasn't apologized. And if I forgive her, then I'm breaking my boundaries. And that's really unhealthy, right? God wouldn't want me to be unhealthy. So of course, I know God says I should forgive, but I just, I just can't forgive right now. That would be wrong for me to do. Like Saul, we plead, but you don't understand. You weren't there. You didn't see what was happening. You don't know my lot in life. And friends, the truth is at the root of every sinful thought, word, or action, at the root of every disobedience to God's commands is a lack of trust. After every single one of them. It is a belief that God is not to be trusted, that he doesn't know enough, that he doesn't see our situation rightly, that your circumstances are different or special or an exception. The first thing I would tell you is, man, no, they're not. You are not all that special. Your circumstances are not all that uncommon. In in fact, 1 Corinthians 10 says that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. What you are going through has been gone through by believers across the globe for centuries, even to this day. It's not that uncommon. And secondly, we distrust God to our own peril. We distrust God to our own peril. I try to tell you this all the time, but God is not trying to take anything from you. He's not trying to take anything from you. And the things he commands, the things that he instructs for you, he is not trying to rob you. He's not trying to ruin your life. He's trying to give something to you. His commands, his instructions, his ways, they are for your good and for your joy because he knows how life works best. For some of us, the reality of it is is that your life is miserable right now because you keep choosing to take matters into your own hands instead of listening to God. That is the reality for some of you. Your life is not miserable because God is making your life miserable. Your life is miserable because you are choosing it because you won't listen to him. But bigger than that, just like Saul's rejection of God led to God's rejection of him, our rejection of God leads to God's rejection of us too. But there's good news. Because friends, God can actually be trusted. He can. And we know this because there is a true and better David. There is a true and better king who has shown us undoubtedly that he is in fact trustworthy. And that true and better king is Jesus Christ, the son of God. The same reason that Saul could trust David is the same reason that you and I can trust God. In verse 17, he says to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. This is exactly what Jesus has done for us. When Jesus was tempted to claim the kingdom by another way besides God's way, he didn't. When he could have called a thousand angels to his side to destroy his enemies, he didn't. When he had the right to crush us as his enemies. He didn't. Instead, he gave himself for us. 
Some of us need to be reminded this morning that when it comes to the cross, it should have been you. It should have been you. It should have been me. It should have been us. This is what our sins deserved. We deserve the cross. But Jesus took it for you. Whereas we repaid him evil, he repaid us good. And just as the torn cloak of Saul proves David can be trusted, the torn body of Jesus proves to us that God can be trusted too. That with whatever we have going on, he can be trusted because he is for our good. You can trust him. When your future seems uncertain, you can trust him. When your life seems out of control, you can trust him. When obedience feels like the costly choice and that disobedience would be more advantageous for you, you can trust him. When the weight of your sin and distrust in God feels insurmountable and even unforgettable, unforgivable, even then, you can trust him. Because David was not the only one who walked out of a cave proclaiming grace. Three days later, Jesus walked out of his own cave from the dead, proclaiming grace to souls like you. And so the only question for us this morning, and this is where we land, is will you trust him? Will you trust him? Will you turn from trusting your own thoughts, your own ways, your own voice, or perhaps the voices of others, and trust in his? Will you continue to let your circumstances dictate your faithfulness, or will you trust him no matter what your circumstances may be? Whether it be for the first time or the thousandth time, the invitation for each and every one of us this morning is will we trust him? Will you trust him? Let me pray for you. God, we are grateful from the negative and positive examples you give us in the life of David of what it looks like to trust you or to not trust you. Uh, God, we are grateful that you have repaid us with good. Uh, that when we had rightfully earned the cross for ourselves, you took it on our behalf. That your body was broken for us. That you were torn from the Father so that we would be mended back in. We thank you for that grace. And God, I pray, I know for a lot of us, there are all kinds of situations going on in our lives right now where, to be honest with you, we trust more in what we can see than in you because it just, yeah, it just, it just feels so daunting and we want to manage and we want to be our own little kings and, and do this thing. God, I pray that you would expose those areas to us you would help us this morning see like where, where are we prone to not trust you and go our own way and that you would lead us in your kindness to repentance. God, I pray that you would give us faith, that you would remind us of how good you are and that you are for our good, that you are not against us and the cross of Christ is proof of this to us and that you would stir up in us a zeal and a passion to trust you with everything, to give our lives to you because you are our good, kind, and gracious Heavenly Father. And we just need your spirit to do all that heavy lifting. And so pray that you would, that you would convict us where we need to be, to be convicted and stir up faith in us where we need faith. Help us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.